0: This is a moment for the Big C Church to step up and to say, "Okay, you know what, there's a whole part of the body that's hurting. I need to listen. I need to tend to that part of the body. And what is it that Jesus would call me to do in this moment?
1: Welcome to the Renovare podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is Sheila Wise Rowe. Sheila's a counselor, spiritual director, and author of the book, Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience. In recent months, there are a number of important conversations going on, not just in the US, but around the world, related to racial justice and reconciliation. Sheila Wise Rowe is uniquely positioned to help the church become a place of healing and wholeness, to help us re-envision who we can be as the body of Christ. Like so many, experiences of racial trauma were part of her developmental years, as were her family's stories of life-altering oppression, strength, and resilience. Sheila spent her professional life as a counselor specializing in issues of trauma, both in the U.S. and for 10 years in post-apartheid South Africa. Her book pulled me in, in ways few do. She's a good writer and beautifully blends story with profound truth, with an honesty and compassion that really moved me. Her book is not just for people of color as they look for ways to process and heal from racial trauma. But for all who are willing to listen and understand the experiences and suffering of so many around the world, both historic and current, it was a real honor to talk with Mrs. Wise Rowe, and I'm delighted to share it with you. I talked with Sheila over video call from her home in Boston, Massachusetts. Sheila, I'm curious to hear what brought about the idea to write this book.
0: I've had an extensive history in, in working with people who deal with trauma. In many cases, it was trauma they experienced in their homes or um, later on in life in school or even in the church. What I discovered over time is that many of the people who are, I was counseling, whether they were Black, um, Asian, um, Latinx, or um, Indigenous, that like they were dealing with racial trauma as well as the trauma that I think many of us have experienced throughout our lives. And so there was a way in which there was an undue burden that people were carrying. And so it would often come up in counseling sessions and the need to really, to really process that walk through it and um, for uh, folks to really confront the ways in which they haven't really dealt with that. And so it wasn't, um, this wasn't new to me, this whole, a topic of racial trauma. And so, coming back from South Africa, where we lived for um, close to 10 years, so from 2005 to 2016, um, we were living in Johannesburg um, doing ministry there. And and certainly, because of the history of South Africa with apartheid and um, the fall of apartheid, and the, the ways in which people, many people, were still carrying racial trauma um, around. Those years, um, and even the younger ones, uh, they grew up in homes with um, parents who had experience, um, real um, horrific um, uh, experiences in their family line, um, loss of loved ones, loss of property. And so part of my work in South Africa was working with um, young, primarily college age, um, men, young men and women. Uh, and dealing with uh, identity issues, who, who am I as a believer, um, you know, many of them coming from rural areas, uh, trying to integrate um, their, their family story with this newfound faith, um, and also dealing with issues around the racism that they were confronted with. Um, they saw it in their hometowns. Um, as well as what they were experiencing in university, and and for those who graduated now in the workspace. and and so that was a that was a journey for for many of them in really starting to to look at the painful past and the painful present. You know, we do that to a certain extent in the U.S., but it really is was a new thing in South Africa to really stop and really look at the pain. Um, and I, I think in many ways it was just. Culture of we just have to keep moving forward and you know, don't look at it, just keep going. So, fast forward, we moved back to the US in 2016. And uh, I grew up in Boston, and so just what I was experiencing in terms of how people were uh, experiencing that whole election cycle, um, it seemed that there were two different realities. And on the one hand, um, Black and Indigenous and other people of color were experiencing another reality than white evangelical Christians and you know majority white folk in the U.S. Everyone was on a razor's edge. There was a way in which the trauma was just too much, and there were just a um, just an onslaught of killing of unarmed Black men and women, and people were. Uh, Saying and doing things that just it just felt like they uh, were just given license to just do and say, and uh, you know, all filters were off. And, and to me, it felt really differently. Uh, it felt different because I I grew up around the Acing era, so I I've experienced having like racial you know slurs thrown at me, swears, you know get go home, go back to Af- all of that, go back to Africa. I experienced racism in, in the schools and just the attack on my intelligence and um, you know my uh, having a, a sense of having a hope and a future and just being under constant attack so I understood that I experienced that in a very kind of a microcosm experience in Boston in the 60s and 70s and and so to come back and see like wow it's not just this little microcosm of Boston, but it's just, whoa, it's like widespread. People are uh, in pain and they're in trauma. And it's past trauma that hasn't been dealt with and it's current trauma. And um, and just in that sense of really, just in prayer uh, and listening, I had become a part of a writing group and I was writing articles. Uh, and just this sense of calling that in this moment, I'm drawing from my experiences in South Africa, my experiences here in in America. I also did a, I had a little bit of like about eight months in Paris. We lived in Paris for that time. So all of those experiences are coming together, and um, and and really submitting that to the Lord, and really allowing Him to use my experiences, um, hopefully to to help people to really start to process things and to heal.
1: One of the things that I really like about your book is the stories. Just there's really compelling stories and very personal. And I mean, I would imagine it was difficult writing some of these. Is there a story or two that you might want to share?
0: Yeah, I share in the book, my story of my grandfather um, and just the pain um, that he experienced um, and, and my father as a consequence and that my um my father's parents and their younger brother uh, were they contracted TB during a TB outbreak. and this was like in the late 30s, early 40s. and um, there were no there were no hospitals for for black people at that point. Um, and so they basically had to just rely on home remedies and prayer and hoping that something would um, help and uh, um, you know, what was was sad was that my father at that point and his his um, other brother he had a there were three boys um, and when his mother and father and brother died like literally one after the other as well as other family members that sense of of just being abandoned and alone and. I, just the pain of it and the inability to really process it really affected my father throughout his entire life. And he was raised by my grandfather, um, Granddaddy James, we called him, and um, he, amazing, loving man. I I met him, but he um, he ended up uh, dying in his late late nineties. The back farmer, in the 70s. Right? yeah, this, the yeah. Farmer. So I, I actually you know met him. And he would visit us. By the character, and he was a, a an African Methodist Episcopal pastor, elder, and um, just a really incredible person. And yet, at the same time, my father that loss um, really affected him, and the trauma of that, as well as subsequent events in his life, um, really played itself out in terms of his um, just having a lot of rage. Um, and uh and it coming out in different ways and I start the book with a story about a riot that happened in Boston and um and just his participation in that and um and I was really young at the time and kind of witnessing him go out there and and the fear around that and understanding but then not not understanding why he felt that he needed to do this, why he needed to go out, and he said he wanted to go beat up white people. That's literally what I overheard as I was hiding behind the door. Uh, to see the next day, just the devastation of that, it had a, this indelible mark on me. Just to see over the years the effects of it. Uh, eventually, he, my parents separated, and so I came away with just a real sense of, I think, not really knowing how to how to deal with my own struggles or internal pain or, um, fear, or even my, my own trauma. And so, you know, I spend a lot of, you know, chapter one, but mostly chapter two, really dealing with me and my own journey of healing. And a lot of that is around, uh, coming back here. Um, it's, it's about the school experience and all that I, um, had to endure as a child, but then, when I came back to the U S and with all of the pain that I was seeing, there was a serious sense of like of fatigue and weariness that I experienced. And I, and, and I keep hearing that now. I keep hearing that from so many um, people of color that they are tired Um, and that because we've been at this for, for forever, it feels like, and, and it feels like, two steps forward and then three steps back. And and we've seen that these things happen before. Uh, and so just this sense of what does it mean for me to to stop and to rest and reflect and to listen. Um, because the Lord is wanting to is wanting to say something to me and he wants to minister comfort and and love to me in the midst of this? And am I able to allow other people to come alongside to support me? Um, and so that um, that has been an ongoing journey. I, I make a comment in the book where I, I had gone to um, a listening prayer, counseling ministry time, in which it just in listening, getting quiet. And there were these two white women, actually. And what came up for me was this sense that um, how many people of color woke up the day after the election and felt that God had abandoned them and that we were left as orphans. And and so that, that hit at the core for me, of just that sense of, wow, there's like a whole wing of Christendom that is saying, this is a wonderful thing. And then there's this whole other section that is in deep pain that the pain is being denied or minimized or even ridiculed. And and so we are left, as people of color, thinking, where, where is God in this? Where is God when the child is being kept in a cage? Where is God when, you know, a, a black man or woman is, is gunned down? Um, what is God doing? What is God saying? Uh, and... That was important for me to 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 have that come to the surface because it was an opportunity to be real about that, um, and that's the whole the whole point of like lament and lamenting prayers is it's about being real and and allowing the Lord and allowing the Holy Spirit to bring us into the place of what is really true and that where is God, what is He doing, uh, um, and so that was part of. Uh, Part of my journey, and I talk about that in in that second chapter, uh, and getting to the point of having to really be aware of what is God saying in in every moment. Because there is so much trauma out there. And we're in the middle of this with with COVID. Um, It's just, it's overwhelming. Um, And there are ways in which... You know, as people of color, we continue to feel like we're not seen, we're not heard, we're not supported. Um, and especially when we're suffering. Uh, and I highlight this scripture from Jeremiah 614 that says, they've treated the wounds of my people carelessly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. And And that has been our reality. And, and unfortunately, I've even seen, you know, as, as there's this big rush to reconciliation, that there isn't a dealing with the trauma that people of color carry and that's gone unaddressed and i feel like we're in this moment in 2020 where um the veneer is off you know the it's exposing that there's been a false peace and there's a false sense of uh you know that we're we're in some kind of a prosperous period um it's denying a we another reality that um for a significant number of black and brown people it is meant prosperity, whatever small amount of that has meant four or five jobs. It has not been. And so in the in the with COVID, you know, everything shutting down means literally everything is lost in an instant. That's not that's not God prosperity. That's not God um you know like that blessing that abundant living. It's it's really, you know, just making it. And it's so precarious that at any moment and and we this is a huge moment. Um the ones who are suffering the most um are black and brown people and indigenous people in terms of the number of COVID cases, the number of deaths disproportionately, um, the job losses. We're getting hit hardest. And so and we're at this point again where we're like looking at the body of Christ, the big sea church and saying, where are you? This is a moment for the big sea church to step up and to say, okay, you know what? There's a whole part of the body that's hurting. I need to listen. I need to tend to that part of the body, not ignore it, not minimize it, not try to wrap it up in some notion of whatever, you know, critical race theory or Marxism or whatever, just as a deflection. But there are people who are in pain. And what is it that Jesus would call me to do in this moment? Um, This is a moment where, He's wanting me to step up. What does that look like?
1: A little bit of my understanding in trauma as a clinical social worker is that one of the key pieces is to be out of the abuse and to have the kind of acknowledgement of the abuse in order for people to kind of move towards healing. So, what does healing look like today?
0: So, you know, the the, the notion of healing racial trauma is that we are we are healed and we are healing. And it's an ongoing thing because it's an on the it's it's an ongoing issue. And so, for for many of us, we're dealing with a backlog of racial trauma that we have not dealt with. You know, we've basically packed it in, and it's affected us emotionally. It's affected us across generations. We are experiencing it in our bodies, in our health, um, and a lot of what we're seeing with some of the co- comorbidities with COVID nineteen. It's it's about that. Um, It's about the effects of racism in communities where you know there are food deserts and the food is not the quality of the food is not there. The healthcare is subpar, um, education, and so many layers. Uh, And so, it's hard to say. You're you're absolutely correct. It's getting out of the trauma and then being able to walk forward. But we have to be aware of God with us you know, Emmanuel, in the midst of everyday encounters that we may very well have, and who are the people that God has called around us to also support us. Um, so it's not just solely about me and God and, you know, the Lord and what Jesus is doing, but how, who, who can I actually share with? Because a huge thing with trauma, is you said, it's about being able to tell the truth of the story and having someone validate that truth. And so that's absolutely, that's important to have that. And so whether it's being able to do that with someone who is of the same, you know, ethnic group, racial group as you, or there are um, white brothers and sisters who have really shown that they are able to and have a capability to actually, to listen to, to lament, to bear with and, and sit with um, us in our pain and to help us to walk out of it.
1: So, the idea that not being isolated, but being a part of a community where you're able yeah. to talk about it and yeah. to have your stories heard, that that is a critical part of some of the healing? Is that?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It really is. Um, and I, you know, the, the this sense that we've had to be silent and it's been a historical thing, you know, if you go back to, um, even when, you know, for me, and my ancestors were enslaved, that silence was a, was a survival mechanism, and in many ways. Um, and, and there was a sense that, um, whether it was during the 60s or whether it was earlier, it was Jim Crow, but the, just the sense of, I don't think anything's going to happen if I do speak up, so I might as well just keep quiet. And so
1: and survival we're
0: now in a place where, yeah, where, where more people are listening um, which is in I feel like twenty twenty is also showing that that there actually are more people who are actually listening, so that's been um that's been an eye opener that there are more people listening, more people who are ex- expressing care. Um, there have been some dramatic shifts culturally that people have been working forever on and um and so i I think that um you know having this this sense of people who are going to be in it for the long term um who are going to persevere with us and come alongside us it, it's there's healing that happens in that there's healing that happens in community and so it's both an internal uh healing that needs to happen of um allowing of Jesus to meet us in the places of pain in the places where whether we're questioning, am I an orphan, you know, what kind of damage that was done, you know, whether it's some kind of a moral injury where we expected the church to be better than it, than it was or the response. And so we've been left wounded around that and it's affected how we perceive God. Um, And we need healing around that. And I would say that lament is another huge piece of that lamenting and prayer being honest, as I've said before. Um, and then working through forgiveness is a huge piece and um and that's a hard one it's a hard one because we have personally experienced things we vicariously are seeing videos they're on all the time there's something new almost every day um and it's horrific and and we're at we get to a point where we've got to decide what do we do with this um do we honestly go with god before God with our rage and our anger, and and allow Him to meet us in that place, or do we just lash out and respond and um, and we take vengeance into our own hands? That I'm angry, so I'm going to go burn something down or whatever. What is the ways in which the Lord would have us deal with that anger? To just whether it's even harnessing that energy for something that really is going to make a positive impact and change. The, I can understand looting. I understand the anger and the rage. I, I get that. Um, but I also, as one who ex- has experienced a riot and, um, and looting and a burning down, the after effects of it are pretty devastating. When you're a child and you watch what was like a community that was, whether it was vibrant or even if it was struggling, but now it's like burnt to a char. That is, um, that's a hard thing for a child to grasp or to understand what is going to, what good is going to come out of that. Yeah, so it's really, it's, it's about what do I need to do, Lord, in this moment um, to know that you're present with me? Um, how do I do soul care in the midst of, you know, such horrific situations? You know, how do I tend to myself spiritually, physically, relationally? mentally, emotionally, and even in my work. Like what are the things that I need to have in place to help me to thrive and to stay connected to the Lord? And that requires like stopping and, and listening even to our own hearts. So it's yes we want other people to listen, but we also need to listen. We need to listen to what's going on inside. And and I think um because of just how racism is relentless, we have not often done that. We just have to keep it moving because um, we've got kids, we've got work. You know, we do space.
1: space to deal with. Yes, literally. What do you see as the role of the church in this day?
0: You know, I think about that. The scripture that talks about things. Different parts of the body and does the hand say to the eye don't need you? Does the ear say to the kneecap, you're no good. Um that I feel like this is a moment where we've got to listen to the parts of the body that are hurting. Um it's just like as a as a person, if you're, you know, whether it is you sprained your ankle and you're in excruciating pain while you're walking, you can choose to ignore that if you want. Um, or you could choose to tend to it and discover that oh, it's not a sprain. Actually, it's a broken ankle. And if I don't tend to this, it is going to cause me real pain, and um, it's going to cause uh, probably an inoperable damage, or well, maybe it'll be operable. But I'm by my not paying attention. Am I not listening and tending to it? I, there's a part of me that um, will continue to be in pain, and. And Jesus doesn't look at us as pieces. We're the body, the bride of Christ. It's a whole bride, not a part bride. And so, if there has to this this in this moment, the church has an opportunity to decide: Does it want to be a whole bride, or does it want to be a like some awful zombie? I don't know, um, dismembered. That's not a body. And so um, if we are listening to what the body is saying, and th- that is whether the body aligns with your politics or not, the body is saying something. And, you know, not only is it that the body is saying, I'm in pain, the body, uh, at least the Black and Indigenous um, Asian, like next part of the body is saying, look, we actually know what it's like. To live faithfully under trauma, under duress, you know, under upheaval, you know, all the things that people are fearing, we know what that's like to be under, to be oppressed, the the fear that that's going to happen to the church or the church isn't going to be able to um, survive. We know what that's like. And so we actually can contribute something to the body. Um. Yeah, if you want to listen, not just to our pain, but also to also to our resilience, we have a sense of like the Lord has been with us. And if it was not for the Lord by our side. And even though it's been hard and many things have been horrific, but God has been present and He has been at work. And so we can we can contribute that to the body. Um and, and who we are. You know, every it's not an accident that we Um, have different languages and different hues and all that. And Revelations gives us that picture that that's in heaven. (laughs) You know, so this is not like, oh, we're all going to be babes. That is not the case. You know, and we're all going to be thinking the same and worshiping the same. It's like every tongue, tribe, and nation, why why mention it if it wasn't going to be there? And so if we can't do that now, we're either going to be in a real rude awakening when we get to heaven. (laughs) But this is like an opportunity to figure out how to do that now. And so, um, so I would say to the church, decide, are you going to do that now? Because if we don't, I don't know what the consequences are going to be, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of seeing some of it now.
1: It occurred to me a few years back that the um, American black church knows about suffering, knows how yeah. to suffer, and an incredible gift, potentially. What would you say to a, a white church that really wants to respond well? and has a kind of longing to to be a part of a healing process. Are there any, you know, practical steps that folks in leadership could take?
0: You know, I I always feel like it it has to start with the the leaders, because if the leaders are not doing their own work, they're not wrestling before the Lord around these, um, around, not just racism as this big, you know, big R racism, but yes, that, but implicit biases, explicit biases, how is that manifesting in their life and how we're perceiving other members um, of the body or, or just people of color period, whether they're members of the body or not, like are are there ways in which we're categorizing people, you know, as leaders and we view things from a screen that um, doesn't, see them for who they, the fullness of who they are and everything that they bring to the table, um, that that will just bring more richness to um, to a particular church or congregation. And I know that there are churches that are in predominantly white communities where there, there isn't any black people around. That's just the reality. But there are ways in which, um, and we've, I've seen this in Boston where there have been suburban churches that are in like, communities it's like 1% or 0.5% um, people of color who made a commitment to partner with a church in the city, uh, a church of color, and have said, okay, we're here. Not just like, oh, we're here. This is the charity case. Let's go in the city and we're going to do this, but we're going to partner. We're going to partner with them. We want to hear from them. We want them to come visit us. We want to go visit them. We want to look at how can we help support uh, in terms of the transformation of whether it's an inner city church and, and, and how to come, you know, it, it can be a church. It can be, um, around college, whether there are Christian students who of color who need help financially, financial aid, like, are you willing to give support to institution, um, to help with, with something like that? I, my husband is, um, at Gordon college and they have, um, Clarendon scholars who are, there are black, um, indigenous for the most part uh, students, as well as there are actually some white students as well. But these are students who are committed to um, to social justice in various forms, and and so donors fund that, and and that really helps the student to go through college, um, get their degree, and then go back and serve um, in in their communities and elsewhere um, to. With a heart towards transformation, and so there are there are many ways in which um, white churches can do that. And and if it, if it's a multi ethnic church, then again, on every level, leadership needs to do their work so that it's I'm we're providing this space where anyone who comes in feels that they are welcomed, not that they're folding into kind of a white cultural normativity. But that they are bringing who they are, and it's welcomed and it's expressed um, fully expressed. And they see people who look like them, and um, and there's a passion and a heart for uh, for that church to really represent the the fullness of the body of Christ. And and that it's, it's not just the leaders, but the leaders are modeling it for the members of the congregation, and it trickles down to them, and they are encouraged to live in ways that really reflect that diversity. That, that diversity is a blessing that should be celebrated.
1: So it starts with leadership in a lot of ways, listening, hearing yeah, stories, yeah. looking for ways to partner, yeah. being inclusive in a way that that's not requiring people to let go of their culture, right? That, right. that, that piece of inclusion, but yet make sure you're adopting to uh, white, white culture and, and then support.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mentioned repair in the um in the book that beyond just the, the forgiveness, reconciliation, also there's an element of repair that that has to happen that um it's not just that you know what what was done was wrong, but also you know what, there was damage and I I need to repair. I need to uh a- ask the Lord prayerfully what is repair look like? Um and it can vary and it does vary and we see uh people who have made some decisions whether it's institutions that have decided okay you know what this actual this campus or this seminary was built on the back of the enslaved so what are we going to do about that we one i think one of the colleges secular college they actually they had a list of the people and they were able to say okay descendants we're going to have uh, a scholarship fund for the descendants to be able to attend this university. Yeah. Um, I, I shared um, in another instance a story where uh, a, a white woman who bought property in um, Boston, urban, um, inner city uh, area, and she really felt just wrestling with prayer because of gentrification and the fact that property values had gone through the roof. And then suddenly they became an area where um, more and more white people were buying into the community and what it was doing is pushing out the people of color who historically been living there and increasingly that was the case and so um, her friend was not able to buy in the area anymore that she had grown up in loved and yet um, it was one of those moments where the, the white woman really prayed about what am I supposed to do Lord, what would you have me do and and this is not to me everybody will do but She really felt, and you know, in prayer and and consulting with the pastor, her family, etc., that she was to sell the house at the price that she bought it 10 years ago. And in essence, she handed over to this black woman $500,000 in equity Um, in in the house because she sold it to her in the um, 2010 um, value. And so um, that's. That's a real extreme example, but there are there are many ways in which repair ha- needs to happen. And and there are talks about reparations and um yeah, it's not it's not actually that complicated in terms of like, well, who was play? Part of my research in doing this book for my own family history was looking at going through Ancestry.com and just all of the records and it was incredible. Like you I could actually go back to like 18 the late 1800s the late 1700s uh, and it was amazing and shocking and there were census and there were um, uh, military records and all it's all there
1: I have a kind of odd question if I can ask. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so um my wife is mixed and yeah. so all the stuff going on in world today, it I mean it's emotionally taxing and there's an mm. exhaustion and it brings up all these old wounds and it's just it's just raw. And then I have the luxury to kind of step back and look at it sociologically and kind of, you know, run through all that. Um but even with that, I mean it's a it's a part of our home. Even with that, uh, as a white person, I find myself uncomfortable talking about race with people of color. And it just occurred to but, but I feel it's something I need to do. And I think I feel like it's really, really important just for my own growth and for my being as a benefactor of injustice. Historically, Mm -hmm. do people of color? How? I'm not, and and I don't mean to ask you to speak for everyone, but uh, what is it like for people of color to talk about race with white people?
0: Uh, you know, I think that what many white people don't realize is that we actually have studied you all really well <laughs> okay. because we've had to, we've had to. So if you go you know, as a black person all the way back to being, you know, enslaved and. You know you had to know like what is the is he in a good mood is he not in a good mood what's going on like we so we are constantly aware of our environment um what are people feeling we've got to read the temperature um we spend an inordinate amount of time uh in just mental energy, mm-hmm. but are reading the room yeah and so um There are ways in which, even if the conversation doesn't go to race, that we are, we are picking up these cues. Um, And there are ways in which, you know, whether it's the implicit bias piece, like we're, there can be very, very subtle and we're, we're seeing it. And, and generally, um, we've been reluctant to say something and partly because there's been a cost and the cost may be that you're going to lose your job. Um, the cost may be that you're going to lose access. Um, there's any number of costs. And so Being
1: minimized and then that just feeds the trauma, yeah, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, um, but when we find that there's, there are people who actually, um, rather than they're coming at us with their sense of what our reality is, but they, they really are coming to listen. Um. And they want to understand. And even if someone gets it wrong and they're like, you know what? I totally blew it. I don't understand. And they come with humility. Uh, that is something that we don't see a whole lot. And we certainly aren't seeing a lot of it now, and particularly on social media. So we to, to actually have that level of, I don't understand, help me to understand, makes talking about race. Easier for for me as a black woman to be able to have that conversation because then I know this person is not coming as the expert. They are really coming um, with a, a, a humble posture and a, and a wanting to to listen and to learn. And um, and we can we can do something with that. We can we're open to that. Um, it's when the arrogant I know that doesn't work well. It doesn't really work
1: well. Let me tell you about your experience, right? Just... Literally, yeah. yeah. Sheila, I am so grateful that you wrote this book and I'm so grateful that you've sat down today and shared your story. It means a lot. Thank you. That was Sheila Wise Rowe. Again, her book is titled Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience. You can learn more about Sheila and her work at SheilaWiseRoe.com. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort, which offers resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing your questions or thoughts. Email podcast at renovare.org or tweet at renovare. This podcast is produced by Brian Moricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Other music is by Lee Rosevere. Until next time, be well, friends. Be well.